but God raised him from the dead. Amen? Amen. You know, what I liked about the video was it talked about purpose, calling, mandate, mission. The resurrection of Jesus is the most critical doctrine. And it makes possible those four things. I mean, listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 14. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If this did not happen, then everything's a lie. Turn to Acts chapter 13. It's really a text I want to look at this morning. Book of Acts is one of the earliest records of the church that we know of. And in one of Paul's first recorded sermons, here's what he talks about. Acts 13, beginning verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understood, understood the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, he took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up, from, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people, and bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. This is God's word. What I find interesting in the book of Acts is it's dominated by the subject of the resurrection. Over and over again, we have this phrase, he came back from the dead. And this is significant. And this is relevant. Now, I know today we have the advantage of, of looking back as we look at present and future. But we have to realize in first century, it was different. When Jesus died, when you reveal this in Scripture, their hope died. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was going to overthrow Rome. And now he's in a tomb. 
So in their minds, it's time to call it quits. Lights out in their faith. Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And, and he made outrageous claims. It really drove the religious leaders crazy. He said things like this. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than Abraham. I'm greater than your prophets. I have the power to forgive sin. And they knew only God had that. But this is what they believe. And here they were living in the midst of a corrupt religious system. They were living with a heartless government. And, you know, there's, there's nothing recorded after his death where someone said, listen, let's keep this thing going. No, it was time to give up. And I like the way Andy Stanley said this. He goes, listen, he goes, then came the event that launched the movement that eventually brought us the Bible. And the order is significant because Christianity doesn't begin with Genesis chapter 1. Christianity begins with the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what in a few, day, few decades ended up. It's why they ended up dominating the religious landscape of their day when everything was against it. Now, when I was reading the text this morning, there's, there's two words that was used over and over again in, in many different forms, and I want to talk about them. Uh, Paul talked about the fact of the resurrection. He talked about witnesses, but he states this resurrection as a fact. And two, he talked about the fulfillment, that this was promised by God. And again, various places, we, we saw text from the Psalms, but this was the fulfillment of the Messiah and a fulfillment that's significant to us. So let's first look at the word fact. Paul states it's a fact, countless witnesses. They all shared the same story. The cross, the empty tomb. I mean, we have a beautiful cross behind me, big and large. It's not just some wonderful symbol that gives us warm fuzzies. And you know, facts are terribly inconvenient, aren't they? They shatter our paradigms. They're impossible to dismiss. I mean, facts confront our realities, and we say things like, well, I don't want to believe that, and I don't like that. Now, think about Paul, and you have to ask the question, what would it take for him to change the facts that he believed? I mean, he hated Christianity. He thought it was outrageous. He was offended. His life was built around killing off Christians, and he did this in the name of God, and he did this even after the resurrection. So what would it take? Well, it took a vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. He saw Christ, and he realized that his two belief patterns could not coexist. He couldn't believe what he believed about the church, and he couldn't believe what he believed about Christ if he was raised from the dead. So the question I ask you this morning is, what kind of evidence would you need to blow away all your doubts and convince you that the resurrection was a fact, that it actually happened? As you think about that question, you realize that Paul did not decide to follow Jesus because he liked it or it made sense. Most people I talk to today, they say, well, you know, I really don't want to be a Christian because I don't like what the Bible says about this. And part of me wants to say, okay, so what you're saying is because you don't like this part of the Bible, you do not believe that Jesus Christ could have been raised from the dead. What we don't need today is a religion, another religion that projects our desires. And that's often what we get, isn't it? But the crucifixion, it was life interrupted. 
They had high hopes for the overthrow of Rome and their hopes were crushed. The resurrection, it was life interrupted again. The fact that he rose changed everything. And how did Christians completely overtake Roman Greco culture in a few decades? One answer is the resurrection of Jesus. It was and has never been seen before. It is unique and it brings the hope and reality of fulfillment. So the fact is associated with fulfillment. Now, fulfillment can be mean many, many different things. We talk about fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. There were over 300 prophecies that Christ had to fulfill in order to be the Messiah. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but mathematicians say for him to fulfill every prophecy, it's what they call one to the 10th to the 17th power. Now, that means nothing to me, okay? If you're a mathematician, you're like, wow, that's a lot. But someone explained it this way. Take the state of Texas. Anybody ever been to Texas? It's a big state. I drove through it one time, and it's a big state. They say one to the 10th to the 17th power is taking quarters and filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Wow. Mark one. And mix it all up. Then blindfold somebody and have them walk across the top. And on their first try, they pick that marked quarter. That's the chance of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies. And it's just not a fulfillment of Christ. It's a summary of our future. It's about fulfilling us as well. I mean, the reality of Christ raising from the dead means that we do not have to live in darkness. Amen? We live with light. It's bright. It's full of glory. The resurrection proves that our future is both personal, certain, and incredibly wonderful. Now, in the days of Jesus, they had different philosophies. And we have them today. They had the Epicureans. They said the end was the end. There was no existence that when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Um, show my age here back in the 70s. Anybody remember a group called Kansas? Yeah, and they had a song called Dust in the Wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. They were good Epicureans, okay? They just didn't know it. You didn't know it as you hummed along with the song too. Uh, then there's Stoics. They believed in, and both these kind of sum up what everybody believes. Stoics believe in the afterlife, but we lose individuality. We're part of this world. And um, the movie Lion King expresses this well. You know, you come back as soil, then food, then animal, and kind of repeat it, endless cycle. And they called the circle of life, and they sang a wonderful song. It makes everybody feel good. <laughs> I do not want to come back as a hunk of grass that's going to be chewed off by some animal, okay? <laughs> but here's the problem. When you study all the philosophies, some say the future is non-existent. Others say there is no personal future. Okay, that's really the summation of all philosophies. Here's the problem with that. There is no love. You know, the main thing that makes life valuable is what? It's love. It's the deepest desire. It's what we long for. It's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, love is what makes life meaningful. 
You know, last week I gave you homework to kind of reflect on this phrase during Holy Week that God does not need us, he desires us. I mean, think about it. He loves us, he pursues us. We too, what this means with the resurrection, we too get raised from the dead. We too get new bodies. You are still you though, but you got some improvements. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Some are saying, wow, I get a new improved husband or get a new improved wife. And you're starting to think, can I put in some requests with Jesus saying, listen, can we tweak this and change this? Then there's others thinking, well, you know what? I had multiple spouses. Which one's going to be the fave, you know? Here's what it says. Jesus said these words, Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, what does that mean? I have no clue. <laughs> but I do know that it's better than what we have now. And what we got now is pretty good, isn't it? See, here's the question that the resurrection causes us to think about. How did Jesus love us? And how you answer that question, this is how we are to love each other. So much of our love is self-centered. It's all about me. It's about what I think I need, about what I want. This resurrection is certain. Jesus did not die for his own sins or for himself. He died and rose again for us. And we have this confidence in his power that resurrection is the proof. I mean, think about it this way. You go into a store, you buy something, you get a receipt. On your way out, the mall cop stops you. And what do you say? Hey, I got the receipt. It's paid for. I am free to go. Now, we sang about this. The resurrection is your receipt for death. When you move out of this world and a physical death takes you, you kind of hold this up saying, listen, it's been paid for. I am free to live. And it's unimaginably wonderful. I mean, you and I cannot begin to think about what it will be like, but it's better than here, isn't it? Martin Luther said the main thing that we wrestle with in our lives here is knowing absolutely that God is for us, that he accepts us. And you see, the resurrection tells us that he is for us, that he pursues us, that he accepts us, that we are paid for by Christ. And so it doesn't matter what happens here in terms of history. Our future is secure. It's why Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now, I was reflecting upon Holy Week this week. I got to admit and confess that my heart was kind of full of three things this week. The first thing it was full of was grief. As I thought about the cost, and as I think about how we treat Christ, often very casual, when I think about the rejection in his world of him, and I think about the rejection in our world and the rejection in our nation, when I think about the consequences, I think about his pain and suffering, and I think about the pain and suffering from rejecting Christ that comes our way. You've heard me say this before. We are living Romans 1. And it's a world where you see the progression of sin, this little phrase that God gave them over. It simply means that, you know what? God says, okay, this is your truth. You get to live in it, but you experience the consequences of that. I'm not going to stop you. And when you start looking at the progression, you realize sin goes this way in a culture. It's first defiant, 
I'm going to do this and I really don't care what the Bible says or Christ says. Then it's aggressive. You pursue it at a faster pace. And then it turns into mocking. We literally mock the very thing that gives us life. Now, there's a story that illustrates this past week. Uh, Georgina Howe wrote this March 29th, year 2021. Story in Austin, Texas. The middle school and the high school introduced a new curriculum. They introduced graphic sexual content. Now, you and I know this is pornography. We know, if you want to say follow the science, we know what pornography does to people. We know how addictive it is, how destructive it is. And yet here's a high school, a public high school, that deemed it appropriate to teach teenagers. Now, they did not reveal this to the parents. But of course, the parents, when the kids brought their homework home, said, what? (laughs) And of course, you do what? You gather a meeting. The school board did not receive the parents' comments with empathy and tolerance. What they did was, in that meeting, they labeled them as religious zealots, bigots, and racists. Now, I have no idea how racism plays in the pornography, but that's what they called them. The parents that questioned the curriculum There was other parents there that agreed with the curriculum, received during Holy Week graphic images with religious phrases mocking the resurrection of Christ. Defiant, aggressive, and mocking. We are living in Romans chapter 1. And I weep over what is ahead. I weep over the consequences that we are living outright now in the name of our truth. My heart was also full of grace. I think about the miracle of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. And I'm overwhelmed with the potential of God's grace, which most of us never tap into its full strength. We like a little grace. We don't like a lot of grace. Because it's inconvenient, isn't it? But history repeats itself, doesn't it? Isaiah chapter 1, they were living in some turbulent times, and I think it's a picture of the American church. He says this in in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, children that I've reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. And then he goes on to describe how God is tired of all the religious activity, how useless, how empty, and he uses strong language. He says it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. But later on, he says, what's needed? Isaiah 6. What's needed is a vision of God high and exalted sitting on his throne. And that's the language of, and what we have to see today is that God has all this. And he can restore and he can heal. His grace is powerful enough to deal with any and all sin. And the cross is the payment for our sin. And the resurrection is breaking the power of sin and death. Amen? Amen. My heart was also full of hope. I have a great hope for the church. I love the church. And I think everything that has been going on is really going to bring a purity to our mission and our purpose and our mandate. It's both present and future. I think about the new heavens and new earth. I think about the complete and final restoration of everything. I think about how we get new bodies. We walk through doors and we eat fish. And I'm assuming that we won't gain weight when we eat the fish, okay? (laughs) 
I've been more impressed if he walked through the door and sat down and ate a bowl of ice cream, but I guess they might not have had that in their day. I don't know. But this is so relevant, isn't it? I mean, think about our world today. And I don't care who you talk to. There is a lot of fear out there. People are afraid of pandemics and COVID. People are afraid of what's going to happen in the economy. People are afraid about our nation, what's happening to it. There's personal fears. There's people that, that they say, I might not make it to the next day. And there's a lot of things that are gripping lives. There's only one way to live apart from fear. The resurrection must become a reality in our minds and our hearts. Jesus is someone who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. <laughs> you got to ask yourself the question, is he worth listening to? I think the answer on that one's pretty easy. So take the word of God and ingest it. It's his truth. And truth is terribly inconvenient, isn't it? And truth is offensive. When you do a, a cursory reading of the Gospels, I'm fascinated about why Jesus drew crowds, about why people followed him. And, and what you note is this. So he feeds 5,000 people or more. What happens? Large crowd. He starts healing people. What happens? Large crowd. And you begin to realize that people follow him for what he did, not what he said. So Jesus has this large crowd because he healed a bunch of people and he starts preaching. I mean, some wanted to make him king. But he starts preaching, making claims like this. Because, you know, I just fed you guys, but I am the bread of life. Someone in the crowd shouts out, uh, no, you're not. We know your parents. We know your situation. And we know that Joseph isn't your daddy. He keeps teaching. And what happens? The crowd thins. <laughs> and it really thins. And it thins to a point... And here's what it says in John 6, verse 66. And after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And after that, he turns to his disciples and said, do you guys want to leave too? I mean, I got to tell you, if I'm preaching here and gradually the crowd just starts peeling out and by the time I'm finished, there's like 10 people left, that would be defeating. So thank you for staying. But we have to ingest his word. We have to communicate with him. We call that prayer. And we've got to do this in community. You know, this was never meant to be a solo experience. And if COVID has taught me anything, it's the power of community. It's the power of physical community. We get together and we worship to an audience of one. We have to learn to worship to an audience of one. It is not about us. It's not about our egos. It's not about what makes us look good. It's about humbly bowing our knees to him who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Amen? Amen. Got to get rid of the idols. Got to get rid of the distractions. Got to lose the fear. See, the resurrection is the event that launched a movement that still exists today. And it's an event of restoration. It is an event of hope. But more than that, it's an event of love. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. As they do that, I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father God, um, we confess that a lot of this we don't understand. And yet there's the fact of your resurrection. There was hundreds of witnesses. It transformed people. It created a moment that people were willing to die for. And all this evidence 
is just a fulfillment of what you have promised to us and in us and through us. And I pray for those this morning that are here that um, they are desperate and their lives are hanging in a balance. I pray that they would see the reality of who you are and what you can do. I pray for others of us, Lord, that this has all been too familiar and too casual and we just kind of go about life and we get busy and we fail to see the significance because you have all this. And we can read the news and we can enter this world with hope and with power. And yes, with grief, because you wept over Jerusalem and so we should weep over just the kind of sin that is taking people down. So heal our minds and heal our hearts. Teach us what true love is. And we want to thank you, Lord, that you have all this today and in future. And we'll get to see you face to face. But until then, may we become the church that you call us to be. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy. And everyone said, amen. amen.